You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Keith Jeffrey, who is a professor of history at Queen's College Belfast, obtained his PhD from Cambridge, and has taught at universities in Northern Ireland and Australia. He has written extensively on British and Irish military and intelligence history, and he was commissioned to do an authorized history of MI6, which is, of course, the uh, British equivalent, the closest there is really to CIA, our Central Intelligence Agency. And it has just been published, and he's graciously agreed to be with us. Uh, Keith Jeffrey, welcome. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, you're in the States now for uh, a tour, I take That's it? Right. For well, how- 10 days in New York and Washington. I'm not allowed to go anywhere else. Uh, possibly for security reasons, or perhaps the publisher can't afford to send <laughs> Well, security reasons certainly sounds more glamorous than, than the publisher's means. Let me, uh, I want, I'd like to take this from the point of view, this is an extraordinary book. Um, the fact that MI6, and we'll just refer to it as MI6, yes. also the Secret Intelligence Service, yes. right, SIS, those are synonymous, yeah. Yeah. and the term SIS, which was used first and why? Well, Secret Intelligence Service is the correct title. It's the legal title, and it came into use in the early 1920s. Uh, It was founded in 1909 as the um, Secret Service Bureau. There was a home department to look after domestic affairs, which broadly analogous to the FBI, and a foreign department to look after foreign intelligence, uh, more or less equivalent to the CIA. Um, In the early days it had various different titles, but there is a continuity of the institution which emerged in 1919 or 1920 or so as the Secret Intelligence Service. MI6 was adopted at the beginning of the Second World War simply as a cover name. It's a kind of post office box. It is literally meaningless. Um, although you might read it as Military Intelligence 6. Um, There are other military intelligence... There are other military intelligence uh, um, uh, branches and have been, but MI6 is simply an accommodation address um, uh, uh, adopted. And and it's become the most popular kind of brand name. If you want brand recognition, MI6 uh, will do. Yes, is the one, I agree with you, that's the one that you typically hear first, although often yes. in talking to intelligence people, they'll use SIS yes. or Secret Intelligence Service. 
I think what's so, so quite extraordinary about this for us is that uh, it has been in existence uh, since 1909 and now is authorizing an official, uh, let's say an unauthorized uh -huh. history, yes. uh, which you've now done, through 1949. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there is no equivalent in CIA. Mm -hmm. There's a very fine history done by a fellow named John Ranlaw, which mm -hmm. I think yes, went up yeah. into the 80s, 85, mm -hmm. something. But there is no such thing as an authorized no. uh, history. What did that? What did that mean in terms of your work? In other words, what sort of access did you have mm -hmm. to archives? Right. What sort of of, of limitations yeah. were put on you? Can you just give a sense of yes. what it was like to yes. to to? Uh, well, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's an inevitable tension between the most secretive organization in the British government, uh, which has very deep secrets, it does very secret stuff. If it doesn't, it's not doing its job correctly. Um, and the uh, commissioning of a history which is going to be published, and a history which is written by an independent academic historian. And in a way, people are always asking me, what is the big secret? in this book. What's the big secret, you know? And they're expecting to hear about some super spy or something. The big secret is the book itself. It is almost uh, counterintuitive that this organization would commission a history like this. So that's the question that needs to be addressed. Um, and it, it has to do with um, a centenary. Uh, any organization, any powerful, successful, important organization, such as this is, which reaches a significant anniversary once it's history written. Um, and uh, that's a very powerful uh, kind of uh, uh, motivation. Uh, when you find that its sister service, MI5, the security service, have commissioned a centenary history themselves, there's another little prod uh, to push them. You know, uh, you don't like to see them publishing a history uh, while you don't. Um, and I think the nature of how people regard this institution, of course, has changed in Britain over the years. It didn't officially exist until 1994, and any British, uh, uh, official British spokesman, if you ask them, what about MI6, they would say, I can neither confirm nor deny the existence of any such organization. Now, everybody knew this. Um, in wartime, it was admitted that there was secret intelligence, uh, but in peacetime, not. And the dogs in the street knew about it. Um, but what you got was increasing mythologization of the service, that the ideas that people had about it, while not unimportant for the service's kind of reputation as a kind of false force multiplier, if you like, the, um, um, uh, the mythology grew up to such an extent that also it was thought appropriate by the time you get to the centenary to set the record straight. And the only way you can set the record straight is by using the archives themselves of the organization. Now, the archive of MI6 is the holy grail of British archives. It's, uh, it's the only government department in Britain that doesn't release its archives in any way. It doesn't hand them over to the National Archives. Everybody else does it. The other intelligence agencies do it, MI6, or MI5, rather, uh, GCHQ, the Signals Intelligence Agency, a special branch, you know, they all, they all hand their documents over. But MI6 doesn't and have no intention, uh, uh, so far as I am aware, ever to do so. Um, uh, so there's immediately a problem. It's not a case of just getting someone to go and look at these things. Um, uh, and they took, I think, the rather brave decision, and possibly risky decision, um, uh, to uh, uh, commission me 
uh, and uh, there was a selection process. I wasn't the only person in the frame, but um, uh, I got the, 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 uh, the um, prize, if you like, of this, uh, uh, to look at the first 40 years of, of the service. So that's really the background uh, to, to the, um, the venture. Well, were, were you in fact, well, there were two questions, really. 40 years is a long time. So the, uh, the question that would come to me, I know you've, uh, you've done uh, at least 13 or 14 books you've either written or edited. Um, how, do you, how do you bite that off? How do you uh, approach an archive of that size, particularly you're one person. Were you given free run? Yeah. And how did you? How do you go about it? Well, that's a very important question about free run. Yes, part of the deal was that I would have absolutely unrestricted access to the archives that have remained, and that was a, a um, you know a, a deal breaker. If I had discovered that I wasn't being shown stuff, uh, that would have been a resigning matter, and no question about that. Um, now, in order for that to happen, I had to have security clearance at, indeed, the highest level. Um, the uh, agency have never, uh, do not make any distinction between contemporary secrets and historic secrets. They've never had to because they never dealt in history. So I am cleared uh, up to the eyeballs to see what they might show the Prime Minister on a Monday morning if they want. I mean, they don't show it to me, and I don't actually want to see it. I have enough to do. Uh, thank you very much. Um, so I am completely cleared and completely vetted. Now, that has a, a advantages and disadvantages. I mean, it, it's the only way I can get to see the archive. It does mean that I am an insider in some way, although I'm an independent scholar. I'm a trustee, a trusted person. And in the eyes of some of my more sceptical colleagues, perhaps rightly, they might think me, the because I am cleared and trusted to do it, I am perhaps the least um, suitable person to write an independent critical history, um, you know, with proper critical appraisal. Uh, now, there's nothing I can do about that except, say, read the book and make up your own mind. Uh, but it, in order to get access to the, this archive, this holy grail, of British archives, I had to be cleared. Um, and I wasn't alone, there was a team. I had a full-time research assistant, I had a number of other assistants um, um, from within the service, um, some retired members of the service who were interested in the history. Um, uh, very valuable kind of uh, assistance because they could tell me stuff um, about the service that I could not find from books and documents. They could say, this feels right or this doesn't feel right. On, and, uh, uh, and they could introduce me, of course, to the history of what the the history that the service themselves perceived of their past, um, which is not always the same. Um, I mean, it doesn't. It didn't always match the history I discovered. In fact, um, uh, uh, but that's a starting point. Um, another starting point is. I mean, in effect, this study of this organization does not change the history of the first half of the 20th century. Uh, the United Kingdom was on the winning side in both world wars. I mean, it's not, there's not some extraordinary sort of uh, astonishing uh, revelation. Um, Hermann Goering was not, you know, a British spy and reporting forwards or back. You know, it, it's not like that. What you do get, or what I think I've been able to do, or at least I've attempted to do, is to fill in some very, very large gaps of the uh, intelligence history um, for this period uh, to provide uh, an enormous piece of the jigsaw, which is of that intelligence history. Uh, and it's a central piece. It's a central piece without which a lot of other stories cannot be told. Uh, and it also tells 
And that's all I can do is to tell the story from, as it were, within headquarters, within MI6 headquarters, an office block called Broadway for most of my period, from the 1920s uh, through indeed until the 1960s. But it's the view from Broadway told from the documents that exist there. Uh, and I can't and I won't go beyond the historical evidence I've got. So in some ways, this history fills in gaps, but where there are still points at which we simply don't know and we can't say, and that's the reality, both of intelligence work sometimes and of history quite frequently. Yes. Uh, you know, this is, I'm going to ask you sort of a, a, <clears throat> an astonishment question. Was it exciting? How did you feel when you were walking down the London street knowing your head was now stuffed with all these secrets that no one else knew on the street and you could not confide. Yes. Of course, you had to wait yes. until you had done your book and, yes. and had it vetted. Yes. But uh, did you find as you began to absorb this material and work with it and interview some of the yeah. veterans yeah. that you truly sort of uh, changed your perspective on things? Well, it's, enor it's an enormous thrill to, as it were, uh, venture into a virgin archive. You know, this is virgin territory. Nobody else, I mean, in the service, sure, they uh, played around and they messed around with the archive, I mean, because they use it for operational purposes and things. They weren't keeping it, indeed, uh, for historical purposes. But it was a fantastic thrill, yes, yeah, sure, to step into, you know, a secure building um, and to read uh, materials that were as secret as any materials might be in the United Kingdom. Um, and even the process of doing it, when I was writing my history, because uh, writing the history in, in a sort of strange sort of way is the easy bit. I mean, that's what I do. I'm a professional historian. I've spent 30 years doing that. And so writing history is what my expertise, that's the expertise I bring to this. Negotiating the text out of the building now is a different exercise, which was invigorating, frustrating, alarming, angering, exciting, all at the same time, and amusing sometimes. And while I was writing this, uh, drafts of this history, my drafts themselves were classified documents. Um, so I couldn't take anything home. Everything had to be locked away in a secure uh, cupboard, as it were, every night. Uh, they have a clean desk policy. It's a nightmare. It is an utter nightmare. Because I don't appeal, I take the W.C. Fields line that, uh, you know, an empty desk is an empty mind. And uh, um, uh, uh, I like my materials about me. Um, and I had a very untidy cupboard, of course, as a result, uh, locked up every night. But having to do that uh, meant, uh, you know, and you can't take your work home. I mean, you can take stuff in your head, sure. Um, and so in that way, I had a little kind of illumination as to what it might be uh, to be, um, a, you know, an intelligence agent out there, not in this case, in my case, in hostile territory, but certainly in foreign territory. This is an impressive looking tome. The Secret History of MI6, just come out now in, in uh, hardback uh, by the Penguin Press. Let me just ask you something. This is, this, I'm asking this on behalf of uh, people in intelligence as well as the, so many that aren't. Uh, MI6, as you say, uh, is a brand name. People know about MI6, British intelligence. Is this an eye-opener? Will people read this and realize things about the nature of, of British intelligence, particularly foreign intelligence, mm -hmm. that's which was uh, primarily affected abroad, and just find some extraordinary insight into to incidents and developments that took place, certainly through 49, which gets us into the eve of the Cold War? 
Well, people will, of course, um, receive what's in the book and appreciate what's in the book at different levels depending on what they know already. For someone who knows nothing about the actual mechanics of spying except what they might read in the paper or in a novel or in some popular thing, this will give them the real McCoy. I mean, how it actually was and how it's actually done. For those who know quite a lot about intelligence, in fact, and, and know a lot about British intelligence, and who, for example, are well aware of the tremendous triumphs of Bletchley Park and the Signals Intelligence Agency during the Second World War, and utterly important, uh, you know, and the most important, in fact, uh, intelligence uh, achievement uh, of the Second World War. But what this will do is it, it restores the context of that achievement in two ways. Uh, firstly, um, uh, Bletchley Park is under the uh, management of um, MI6. Um, from the early 1920s, uh, Bletchley Park um, and the signals intelligence, uh, uh, British signals intelligence uh, capability is run from, from MI6. So, so uh, immediately there's a relationship there, which is not as explicit as it might be in the existing histories from the Bletchley Park end, and I think it's important to, to establish that. Now, there is a debate to, to run as to whether the achievements of Bletchley Park were because of or despite that management, and it's not all you know, on one side of the of the ledger, um, but again, uh, um, uh, I've tried to, to write that relationship in in a kind of even-handed way. But what's also the case is that the um, human intelligence dimension of of, of Britain's intelligence uh, history over the first half of the century have really not had their full due. Um, uh, when uh, Sir Harry Hinsley was writing and his team were writing the, um, uh, um, uh, their great official histories, um, MI6, SIS, refused uh, to uh, be involved in that. Uh, uh, he was given some uh, sort of uh, 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 assistance with it at a kind of one first remove, but he wasn't given any access to the documents or the archives of MI6 in any, any, any way. Um, and uh, so in a way, MI6 um, um, prevented their story from fully being told. And, and, one, and that was another sort of uh, uh, um, uh, um, idea behind commissioning the history, was to restore that balance. Now, if you look at the signals intelligence um, uh, story, it begins, or one of the most important be uh, uh, um, triggers to set off the successes of Bletchley Park is a human intelligence source. And it's a French human intelligence source. They have a spy at the center of the German communications um, in the early 1930s um, uh, who informs them quite a lot about the Enigma developments. The French share this information with the Poles who make terrific technical uh, developments in the, in the late 1930s. And because MI6 has an increasingly good and satisfactory liaison, a human intelligence relationship uh, through a man called Dunderdale, uh, 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 Wilfred Biffy Dunderdale, um, whom I can talk about again because he's an interesting character, but Dunderdale is the head of station in Paris and he builds up, uh, and with the rest of the service, such a level of trust with the French that the French begin to share this information with the British. And without that kind of human intelligence uh, 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 sort of network and connection, um, uh, you don't have the beginnings of the successful uh, cracking of the Enigma code. Um, now, 
There's a lot of technical business goes on. There's the computers they build and all the rest of it. Uh, but there's a human intelligence dimension. There are other ways in which MI6 contributes to Britain's Second World War successes in a technical basis. Now, you know, we're all... A, we see all these gadgets and technical things and, and uh, sort of signals intelligence and um, in, in intercepting uh, you know, cell phones and what have you. Um, and what MI6 do in the, from the 30s onwards is they provide some of the essential technical underpinning um, for intelligence generally and for signals intelligence in particular. They supply some of the raw material. They also supply secure channels uh, for disseminating the intelligence. Now, intelligence... Um, itself gathered uh, is of no use as an abstract. It has to be delivered to where it's needed. And Bletchley Park did not provide the secure channels to where it was needed. MI6 provided those. Uh, so without that, it was, uh, you know, vitiates the whole exercise. Uh, well, one comment, and then uh, I think a major question. Uh, you referred to Sir Harry Hensley. That was the first government-authorized uh, history of British intelligence, it was. without getting into the detail. Yeah. That, that's yeah. the gentleman yes. you met. Yes. Um, there is a lot made of um, the sense that the Americans, in forming the CIA in 1947, they, of course, mm -hmm. had OSS and, and mm -hmm. British had SOE, but when CIA came into being, there was, there was a very strong sense that that uh, the mentors of, mm -hmm. of Dulles and of CIA as it came in to be were the British, was British mm -hmm. intelligence. Could you just comment on it based on your yes. own research? Well, um, here's another importance for the human dimension and particularly liaison. I mean, I think one of the stories that has come out very strongly, one of the themes that has come out very strongly is the importance of liaison with other uh, intelligence services. Uh, they're not always allied intelligence services. They're, uh, they're not always very friendly. They may not be. You may find common cause. For example, in the 1930s, uh, the British and the Nazis had common cause um, uh, against the communists. And, and there's some overlap there, liaison relationships there. Now, there are other areas where the British and the Nazis have no common cause whatsoever. So it's not absolutely straightforward. Sometimes you have to dine with unsavory characters, and you may be use a longish spoon for this, but you still dine with them. And, uh, uh, but in terms of the Anglo-American relationship, um, there's a key development in the Second World War. Uh, the head of station, the MI6 head in North America, is in fact a Canadian man called Bill Stevenson, Sir William Stevenson, or later Sir William Stevenson, who runs a very extensive operation uh, called the British Security Co Coordination out of um, the Rockefeller Building in, 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 in Manhattan. Uh, and Stevenson represents, again, one of those essential human uh, personal linkages. He's a pal of Wild Bill Donovan, uh, First World War hero, Irish-American. He's not necessarily pro-Brit in a pro-Brit way, but he is, I think, uh, uh, convinced of the necessity for the United States to line up with the democracies against the totalitarian fascist uh, challenge. Uh, and um, uh, he's also a pal, of course, of Roosevelt. So you get these uh, personal links. And Stevenson, um, uh, um, you know, goes to Donovan and says, you know, you Americans ought to be doing more of the sorts of things we are already doing. Uh, 
um, is that the covert uh, operations and intelligence and indeed special operations um, are an essential part of modern world and modern warfare. And, and uh, um, uh, Donovan is persuaded of this, Roosevelt is persuaded of this, and Donovan comes out as the first head of the OSS, very important, and of course a precursor of, of, of CIA. And when he comes to Britain, uh, uh, he makes sure that MI6, uh, Sir Stuart Mingies, who's the chief, uh, makes sure that the red carpet is, is ruled out for old Donovan, and he is given access to um, all sorts of people, which helps underpin and consolidate the, uh, uh, um, that closest of all alliances which emerged in the Second World War, that between uh, Britain and America. You know, I have to, this, the, the book that you've now authored is a tremendous contribution to intelligence literature. So I think it will stand as such, and I think you're going to be uh, asked to talk about it for some years to come in the work that you did. So I thank you for that. I have to raise, though, of course, one of the, the best-known members of MI6, and get your comments on that, the man known as, as James Bond, who had a license to kill. Yeah. I, I can't help it. I have to apologize, but I feel we can't yeah. talk about MI6 without at least um, so much of, as you know, of popular mm -hmm. feeling, a sense yeah. of intelligence agencies is drawn from popular culture, yes. Yes. television, movies, book. And there's no, there's no greater figure striding through the intelligence yeah. pop culture than James Bond. No, of course. He is the most famous single spy in the world, and he works for MI6, which becomes the most famous single spying organization in the world. Now, that's brand recognition of a very high order. Um, and if people buy this book and read this book, I, that's what I want them to do, is to read this book, because they think they'll find the real James Bond in it, that's all right with me, because they will. This is better than James Bond. This is better than James well, Bond because it's, it's not a cartoon character. It's not with one bound, he's free. Um, James Bond survives to the end of every single of one of those movies and those novels. Now, he's battered and bruised, but he survives. This is not how it works in the real world, I regret to say. Um, the real world is much grainier, is much more difficult, and sometimes much more lethal. Not, of course, in, 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 in respect of the license to kill. There are more fatalities. Look, in the first three minutes of a James Bond movie, uh, directed by the service than in the entire history of MI6, at least for the first uh, 40 years. I looked hard for uh, uh, killings. Uh, um, but precisely because of that. And there are two or three killings which I have looked at in some detail as a result. Um, uh, but I, I really, there are about two that you could reasonably call directed killings. Um, and one of them is arguably an accidental one. There's a very interesting debate about, about systematic assassination during the Second World War, which again, um, uh, someone says, uh, A, um, I'm not against killing Germans. You can kill as many as you like. I have a long list, but it's not that easy. If it were that easy, in this sort of targeted, systematic way, people would be doing it all the time. Um, and this is in a context, of course, where bombs are dropping and killing thousands of people at one time. Yeah. Um, um, so it's, you know, it's not an issue about not killing Germans. It's about whether it's effective and it actually works. Um, and the kind of James Bond, slam, damn, thank you, ma'am kind of thing, um, it just doesn't match the reality. Now, Ian Fleming, the author of the James Bond novels, did have intelligence experience. 
he was the personal assistant of the director of uh, naval intelligence, um, um, a man called Godfrey, um, and um, knew a lot about what was going on in the uh, um, in the secret world. Uh, he was also uh, a pal of of um, the head of station, the MI6 head of station in Paris, um, Wilfred Biffy Dunderdale, and Biffy Dunderdale was a dashing figure. Um, he was um, first hired in 1919. Um, he was brought up in Russia of a British expatriate family who were working in the shipyard in, in Odessa. Uh, he had fluent Russian. And here's the first difference between your James Bond on the mo movies and the real James Bond. James Bond doesn't seem to speak a whole lot of foreign languages, as I recall. Um, um, uh, you just don't get on in the service unless Frankly, you have a facility for foreign languages. That's a sine qua non, you know, without which you don't do it. So immediately the reality is actually better and cleverer and more able than the, than the, than the film. But Dunderdale had a penchant for f fast cars and for pretty women. He was a man of great savoir-faire, great style. Um, we have a picture of him in the book with his false passport that he used in um, uh, the autumn of 1940 to go to Lisbon. Uh, to meet um, representatives of the French intelligence services out of Vichy. Now again, here's this human intelligence liaison building up. Uh, these relationships, and this is very important and it's not well understood, the relationship with the French intelligence agency, which he had built up in the 1930s, continued after the Germans defeat the French and, and uh, occupy most of the country. Um, and he he meets these people using a passport under the name of John Green. John Green is closer to James Bond than Biffy Dunderdale, so maybe there's a wee hint there, I don't know. Um, uh, uh, and uh, and um, uh, the, the relationships he'd built up with the French are enormously productive, not just what they'd given him with Enigma, but after the Germans have have defeated France. They're still s sending material out, and they never give. They never tell the secret. The French never give up the secret that they had told the Brits about Enigma. Now that's very important too. Um, so Biffy Dunderdale is a kind of real James Bond, uh, and in his old age, he used to tell stories. Uh, he said he used to see stories uh, that he'd um, recognise stories in the James Bond novels that he told Ian Fleming, um, uh, 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 but he was uh, distressingly vague about the precise ones. Um, nevertheless, okay, you want the stuff. There's a man called Peter Tazelar, who's a Dutch agent, and they want to put him ashore in Holland in 1941 on the beach at Scheveningen, uh, where there's a casino on the beach. And in those good old days, you wore a tuxedo to the casino. I understand that standards have slipped uh, uh, laterally, but the Dutch were respectable people and they dressed up nicely to, to go and lose their money in, in the casino. Um, and what they do with old Tazelar is they kit him out with a tuxedo and they put him in a wetsuit and they sprinkle him with a bit of brandy so he'll seem as if he's a bit the worse for wear and they put him on the boat on the, uh, straight onto the beach so he can s jump out of the wetsuit and then uh, stroll in among the people. Now, does that have a wee echo to some <laughs> James Bond kind of story? Well, it's real, and it happened. That's a wonderful story, and, and neither uh, Dunderdale nor any of the other fellows had, quote, a license to kill. I think you've pretty no. well dispelled no. that. What was never apparent to me in the Bond movies that he was operating with a government expense account. Uh, <laughs> I no, can agree no, on that. No. It's been wonderful having you here. And, and you evince such great enthusiasm in talking about this. I've got to believe that comes out in the book, too. So I very much look forward to reading it.
Again, welcome to America. Welcome to the Spy Museum, and thank you so much for being with us today. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you, and uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.